everyone, it's Samilla from Men's Web by Woman Podcast. Welcome to the last episode of 2023. And I have to say that what a year 2023 has been. I mean, wow. I've had ups and downs like everyone else. I'm sure you have as well. But this year has been absolutely one of a year that I could never, ever forget and how it has changed me. I hope you're all doing very well on Boxing Day, by the way. Happy Boxing Day. And I hope all you ha- everyone had a m- lovely Christmas with your loved ones. Talking about a few highlights of um, the episodes throughout the year that I've come that I've been interviewing people and the first one I have to say is the parade of menswear rags but featuring Jojo Ella Grace founder of Jojo's General Store what a guy honestly he his episode I when when that episode went out in August it was I can't tell you the amount of messages I got back and what he did, he was posting it. So every time I was posting it, he was posting it. And I didn't have to ask him. The following day, he was posting it. It was just interviewing Jojo was, it was something else. It was such fun. I can't tell you how fun it was. It was, he had the shop opened. So he had to open the shop. And, you know, his, his insight of vintage menswear is it's on a different level, I can't tell you. But at the same time, he's such a fun guy to talk to and he was so inspirational at the same time. I can't, it was, you know, there was time when there was a customer coming into the shop and he would stop, he would say, ah, oh, I've got a customer. And I would say, oh, right, okay. Um, do you want me to stop now for, and he was, no, 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 just leave it on, carry on. And we was just still carrying on with the interview. There was time where I thought, okay, I've got to stop this interview because I'm sure he wants to, he needs to serve customers, he's got other things to do. And I kind of stopped it. And he said, why did you stop it? Let's carry on. And we carried on for another few more minutes, quite long minutes, actually. And it was, it was one of the most intriguing and fascinating and inspirational and such a fun, exciting episode. I had a Spotify and Apple podcast sending me messages to tell me how well this episode has done. It's, it's, they said it's one of the, it's kind of, it kind of went above all the big ones. And that was like, whoa, hold on a minute. Wow, this is fascinating. And they were telling me that all the big ones that was out there, it actually went past the big ones. So, Jojo, I'd just like to say thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on to Men's Web I Woman podcast. It was an absolute honour and a pleasure and such fun having you on. Have a listen to the clips. Well, yeah, it's tough, really. It's kind of like, it's, it's more of an instinctive thing. You kind of know when you see a good piece. Like, even if it's something you haven't got a clue what it is, it's, it's kind of instinctive. <laughs> uh, it's almost built, yeah. It's is like it- a forager rare mushrooms or something (laughs) (laughs) Jojo is it really hard to get stuff now with vintage because everyone's like you know there's a lot more people selling vintage clothing I think it's hard to find stuff and I think I think the the problem is now I think everyone thinks that because it's second hand or because it's old or because it I don't know because it, it is what it is I think everyone thinks everything's worth a million quid 
which is not necessarily true. You know, someone will offer you something or send you pictures of something. Go, oh, I found this. Uh, what you know? Do you want to buy it or this? And they, I think these people tend to get incredibly excited over something that's yeah. not very special because those things that are special are quite few and far between. Um, and I spe- with menswear as well, especially over the past three or four years, size is so important. You know. But before, like small sizes were really popular. You can get really crazy money for them, um, you know, to the Japanese market. Whereas now, no one really wants a 36 chest or a 34 chest. Like, they'd rather, you know, there's a one point where to Japan, you could never sell them really anything above a 40 inch chest. They'd be like, oh, too big, maybe. Uh, whereas now, it's like all the bigger sizes are more popular. So it, it, it shifts and changes all the time. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. So you know how I travel with the podcast. I don't stay in England, um, in the UK. I actually go round other places to find whoever is doing amazing menswear. And it was, and I like traveling around with in the internet, um, trying to get menswear brands that you've never heard of and try and get them on board. And I've always say that if I find it interesting, I'm sure the listeners will find this fascinating as well. So there was an image of this guy called Shazam, uh, Mazam, Um I apologise if I'm saying the surname wrong. And his father started a brand called Dapper Bespoke. And when I used to see images of Shazam, I used to think he's probably in Italy, somewhere in Naples or somewhere like that. And I got in touch with him and I said, hey, you know, I just love the way you dress, um, amazing tailoring. I think, would you be interested to come onto the podcast? And um, and I said, are you in Naples or are you in Italy somewhere? Because it just looks fascinating. And he actually turned around and said, no, I'm, in, I'm actually in Bangladesh, in Dhaka. And I went, I thought, what? And, ba- and Dhaka is the capital of Bangladesh, right? And I said, what do you mean? You're in Bangladesh. Are you visiting there? And he goes, no, the brand, I, I my business is in Dhaka in Bangladesh. So I thought I had to get him onto the podcast. I literally had to get him onto the podcast because I thought, wait a minute, the tailoring, the craftsmanship, these are amazing craftsmanship that you're showing off. And I said, yeah, it's all done in Dhaka. And we're talking about proper tailoring, amazing tailoring. And I said, how did this all begin? And he said, his father started it. I said, well, your dad started the brand. And he said, yeah. And his father passed away, sadly. And he's taken over and he's still carrying on. And I just said, but these are really amazing Italian men's tailoring. Amazing blazers you're making, amazing trousers, amazing outfits you're doing. He goes, yeah, um, we do everything in the house. Um, and this is... You know, um, it's all based in Bangladesh, in Dhaka. And I had to interview him. This is a bit of the clip from his interview. As I was telling you earlier that, you know, my father's the one who founded this um, company. Yeah. And um, honestly, his his whole thing was about suiting, about making people dress better. You know, because, um, because he used to see, like, you know, people, especially wearing, like, you know, like, like t-shirts and jeans and like you know slacks all the time yeah and um he was he was absolutely opposite right because he used to uh, when i used to go to the office uh, he used to he used to work in it sector okay um he was the ceo of this company called um Tarkal information that's his, his his marketing guy and sales guy right um right. so he used to like you know of course be the most sharply dressed in office 
Wow. And he didn't used to care about who's wearing what. He just cared about him being sharp and presenting himself in the way he thought was best, right? Right. So his and and when he founded this company and uh, when he opened it, his whole mission was to just make people dress better. Um, and you know, and that's something um, I I want to like you know keep uh, um, I want to carry it on, right? So yeah, um, in Dhaka, honestly, yeah, uh, fast fashion is you know retail. And fast fashion is uh, like what ninety percent, yeah, or even yeah. more than that. Yeah. Like the whole uh, like you know, um, but you know, tailoring is actually is is it's it's kind of growing in Dhaka wow. because um, people are seeing the you know when especially when it comes to tailored suits and jackets yeah. and yeah. Uh, even shirts and trousers. Yep, um, people are slowly seeing the you know uh, all the advantages of it and um, and fast fashion honestly speaking the quality is just not there yeah. right yeah um, and you can't just think about the quality too you have to also think about the affordability like you know the people spending powers and stuff yes of course so it's it's still an extremely niche market uh, but the niche is growing very slowly so then when we've heard that we was getting um few listeners from the states and i've always been fascinated by americans us the states menswear new york you know when i was there in new york i used to love going to the shop some of the menswear they have amazing brands out there so i thought why not get a few of them a few of the guys onto menswear by a woman podcast and i found some of the guys who were either photographers bloggers um stylists um doing a lot of things in menswear and I thought why not get hold of them designers as well and here I did and I did that so the first person that I actually interviewed out there in the states in Texas actually musing in menswear featuring Mitchell Moss now he came really nice guy very down to earth he does a lot of um he does a lot of style talks about menswear and he's he's a very stylish guy as well and um he's the founder of menswear musing it's a blog that he started up a few years back and it's one of the most successful blogs it's it's quite well known um very well known in menswear um in the community of menswear so mitch when i got hold of him he was it was in texas it was, it was apparently they were snowed in and I was saying to him, oh, London has the snow as well. And he said, nothing like us, though. I said, no, nothing like yours. But he was, um, it was quite fascinating story how he started and how he began with the uh, menswear musing. And here's a little clip from his episode. Getting interested in menswear, I wanted to dress better and I don't know what the impulse was for that other mm -hmm. than I just, I think, you know, I had a, an example from my dad. He always dressed professionally for his job. Yeah. My older, I have one other, I have one brother and he's older than me and he was always interested in clothing as well right. and dressed well. And in fact, I actually used to make fun of him when we were in school together. <laughs> he's three years older, but I used to make fun of him because he dressed, uh, you know, button up, button up shirts and like okay. chinos or whatever. All right. Um, so I don't know. I, I started getting into it. So I discovered in 2008 you know, you find things online and in 08, you know, Twitter had just launched, um, Instagram didn't exist. Tumblr yeah. was nascent at the time. 
And so uh, I found Styleform. And okay. Styleform is, uh, you know, it's kind of like the early internet's social media or yeah. forums, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I found that, and there's, it was super active at the time. It was kind of probably peak Styleform in terms of subscriber or, you know, user growth and um, engagement. So I learned a ton on there. And um, it was mostly just at that point, just learning. And I would post photos sometimes, which if I went back now and found would probably be very embarrassing to me, but um, I was just <laughs> experimenting. I was learning and I, and I, that's where I learned that I love tailoring, um, right. tailoring clothing suits okay. and stuff like that. So that's where I got my start. Uh, and it was just an interest. It was just because I wanted to dress better and learn how to do it. So I carried on with finding, so I carried on trying to find a few others in America. Um, and I got John Michael, who is the photographer a photographer in New York. Um, John started to work with Chase Magazine, freelancer photographer. Got him on to Menswear by Woman podcast. I also got someone else called Steve Gonzalez, who is the he's he's his menswear is quite it's very stylish actually. He, he wears the most amazing brands on him, and he's. He was talking about how his path started as well um, in menswear, how he ended up in menswear, which was quite cool as well. So here's a little clip from his episode as well. The state of menswear. Mm, yeah. That's an inter interesting question. I feel like we are, might be close to the pinnacle of menswear. We are, I like what we're doing actually, to be honest. We are mixing a lot of different styles into one. Yeah. Um, and, and I love how everybody's coming out with different subcultures of a style per se, like right. the Ivy prep with the Ivy prep with the norm core, yep. the Ivy prep, taking it back to the originals of it, the origins of it. Um, I like the different eras that we're coming out with in menswear right now. Like we're very inspired by like depleted thirties, forties, also sixties, um, all the way to seventies, early two thousands. And they're incorporating all that stuff. Like, um, Men of God, fear God. Mm -hmm. The essential is very 90s style. I like the the, the mixture and the marrying of a two sartorial with like an urban wear. Um, so as as much as I want to say, oh, we are overdoing it. I feel like we are experimenting a lot. I'm I'm happy with the way state of menswear right now. I, I like it. Then I actually interviewed a designer um, who who's He's he's worked for um, Ralph Lauren, um, but he's also has his own brand, and it's called. His name is Fred F. E. Castleberry. His um, he's mixing tailoring sportswear and building a menswear brand, um, where he's mixing both of them together, and it's quite. Um, some of the um, majority of his stuff is quite. They're tailored, but at the same time, quite sporty at the same way. And he's trying to mix both of them together. And he's, he was he was quite fascinating to talk to. A conversation about tailoring and sportswear, which are two of my favorite parts of menswear. And it was great to have him and how he started and how he actually looks into menswear nowadays and how... So that conversation with him was quite 
it was quite a cool conversation. He was he was very into the sportswear world and tailoring and how things are developing in that area and how you can actually put these two together. And though I know a lot of people might say, no, you can't, but you can actually, because if you put tailoring and sportswear together, sportswear has elements of tailoring. You have to know that if you're in menswear, you know, the details, the accuracy of sportswear, tailoring's exactly the same. So have a listen to his conversation. My love and interest and curiosity about clothing uh, through starting uh, a, a, a blog of sorts, a style blog mm-hmm. that really uh, honed in on this niche of, of preppy style, uh, if you will. And that, that is something I started back in 2009. And two and a half years later, uh, I was moving to New York to be the director of concept design for a Ralph Lauren brand called Rugby. Right. And so I moved to New York 10 years ago um, to to, uh, take that post. And I've been in New York ever since. And then after, after the Ralph Lauren gig, I started what would later be Epic Houseberry, which is what we have today. So you've started it 10 years ago? You've been around? No, I moved to New York 10 years ago. Right. I started this label um, six or seven years ago at right. this point. Yeah, back in the, the fall of 2015. So your tailoring has a twist with sportswear. Yes. Uh, you said it has a, a twist of sportswear? Well, I, well, the latest um, look that I've seen on your Instagram you're showing few sportswear kind of feel to it. So it's more like a street, yes. you know, um, how tailoring and sportswear kind of mixed together. Yeah, this was, you know, I think this is something that Ralph Warren has done quite well for a handful of decades now is mixing sportswear, you know, which is, you know, mixing sportswear with tailoring um, and having grown up playing soccer my entire life uh it's a a very particular interest to me um especially in terms of how tailored clothing is going to survive and, and hopefully thrive going forward in the cultural landscape and it's got to be able to be mixed you know because we're not we don't we don't have men going to work in in suits anymore really no so there has been big names um, on the podcast as well. And uh, one of the biggest names was um, the owner of um, the president of CP Company, um, Lorenzo Osti, um, the president and the son of of Massimo Osti, um, the CP Company. Uh, it, it was... It was, um, I sent him two or three emails out to him and got in touch with him through Instagram. And I tell you one thing, it was when he came onto it and onto the podcast, I I was like, wow, hold on a second. Because um, his father, who was the greatest inventor in menswear, he did the most amazing invention in menswear. The CP company was a huge, 
huge in menswear. You know, it it was a total different history being total history made in a sense for menswear. If you do menswear and you don't know who CP Company is, you have to look back onto your archive and see how much they've done and what he was inventing. A true inventor. And talking to Lorenzo was absolutely an honour. It was it was fascinating to hear what he, what they're doing, what's the next phrase and, you know, how forward thinking they are in a sense with their brand and them, you know, all of this, the technology, the technology in menswear has gone on a different level. You cannot get this kind of technology anywhere else. And he was, you know, the invention and the the innovation of technology and fabrics in textiles that's coming into menswear. It's on a different level, totally on a different level. And here's a little clip of his um, interview meaning and uh, is deeply related with society and so it's not easy to make it because it's true we all say we are a product driven brand and in somehow we are but i think cp company is also a let's say cultural driven brand and this is much more complicated to to understand and to adapt to the changing of the society. And this is what happened to CP Company. I think it's not been able in, in a certain period of its lifespan to uh, somehow it, it disconnected with what was happening with the society. And this caused some, some yeah, I mean, the, the brand get into the shadow for, for quite some years. It, with the actual brand, right, at the moment... You, you, uh, sorry, can you repeat? Yeah, um, with the brand at the moment, um, is it cha- has it changed a lot from when your father started it? Yes. In what way? Yes. Is it with everything, <laughs> with the design, with the... I mean, I know it's, with the technology uh, and everything. It's changed... Um, okay, let me tell you this. Mm-hmm. Um just to put things in order, because when we acquired the brand, honestly, I was really scared because, first of all, yeah. I had no experience in fashion at all. Right. No experience in being in a, in a corporation, in a, in a company. I always had my small creative agencies, but yeah. it's a totally different thing. Yeah. And moreover, I knew CP Company was complicated and I felt responsibility and, and I was very scared to make mistakes. And, and okay. make eventually the same mistake others had made in the past. So so looking at the past, what was going on um, when I was trying to get into menswear? And his name is Andrew Ibby, who's a lecturer at Liverpool University. Um, he's also the guy behind um, doing The Missing Fred with Jason Jules. And I think Elliot as well. Um all three of them got together to do this um, exhibition called The Missing Thread, which is still showing at the moment. I think it's going to, I think it's in January where it stops. Talking to Andrew was, um, was quite a quite emotional podcast, actually, emotional um, episode. 
And here's a bit of his clip and have a listen to it because it's one of the most emotional episode I've done. Have a listen and and have a listen to this anyway. As well as everything else that was going on in the world that we understand now. Um, so, yeah, I just kept struggling. Um, but I did find a way and I would always find a way. Um, and I guess that was just a sort of testament to determination i suppose but as you say just sort of loving loving kind of what you do yeah. so loving clothes loving sort of creating stuff having yeah. conversations around culture or, or or just how it makes you feel when you're you know you're creating something and menswear is interesting because it exists in a kind of a structure and a framework so trying to expand those boundaries like brick by brick and sort of challenging um kind of the ideals, if you like, or, or, or the structures without completely tearing them down. That was that kind of space I was working under or working in. And, um, yeah, so, so it was always exhilarating to, you know, to try and move forward with it, but it was also damn frustrating. And yes. I missed out on so many opportunities. Same like, here, you know, same it, here. Um, I was just bypassed so many times and, you know, and, and, going to one of the shows trade shows which was about vintage clothing in um, Stoke Newington and I came across Nigel Cabon and I saw him and I just thought I have to go up to this man and just say I've been a great fan of your work from my uni days I saw all the things that you were making and you were creating fascinated by what you've done in menswear it's it's just unbelievable as a british brand what you've done and how you've done it and how you still are here with the brand it's uh, absolutely an honor so i got hold of nigel and i said would you like to come onto my podcast my name's so and so um uh, love to have you on board and he said yes he literally said there and then he said absolutely told him what where I came from um, with my qualifications and all that stuff he, he asked me and that was it simple as that amazing isn't it and there's me I just couldn't believe it when he's when he came on and he actually came onto the podcast he was quite busy and we we did the episode and it was fascinating it was one of the most amazing he was he was saying about Paul Smith he was talking about Paul Smith. He was talking about Vivian Westwood. He was talking about Catherine Hamlet. He was talking about all of these names that we grew up with in, during uni. These are the people that we actually were hearing when we were at uni. And he was talking about them. He was literally talking about them and how he came across them and how Paul Smith is his very close friend and um, Vivian Westwood and Catherine Hamlet. It's just like, it was so, it was, it was so weird in a sense when, not weird, it was just so unreal. It was like, oh, what? You're joking. And when he was saying all of these names of these um, designers, especially with Vivian Westwood, I, it just felt like such an unreal time. And like, here I am interviewing Nigel Caborn and a man who has this most amazing menswear that 
I am here talking and he's talking to me and telling me stories about Vivian Westwood and Catherine Hamlet and Paul Smith. Can't get it any better than that, can you? Have a listen. You know, when you guys were around, right, like you, Paul Smith, um, all the others, were you... Paul and I really, really good friends. So I met Paul, can you believe it, 1972. So he was just a very normal kid like me in 1972. They used to have trade shows in Harrogate. And he was working for a guy called uh, Harold Tillman, who was very famous and very wealthy and a big Rolls Royce there. And, we, um, and um, he was at the Majestic in um, in Harrogate. And right. it just so happens he was working for Harold Tillman and I showed Nigel Cabin in the Majestic, what well, it was called cricket then. Oh, and I met nice. Paul and we become friends. And Paul actually physically worked for me from about 1973. On and off he worked with me, not for me directly, he just worked with me and helped me. And he said to me, Nigel, you should do Paris, you should show at Sam. And the first time I showed in Paris... In 1973, Paul helped me on the stand. We did it together. And we became great friends through the 70s. And, of course, now I'm really, really good friends with Paul again. Due to COVID, we became great friends. And we spent quite, we spent a bit of time together. And, um, and we, you know, and he's, he's been a lifetime friend, Paul. And Margaret Howell. Yeah. Margaret Howell and I are really good friends. Um, it's so Margaret and, um, and Paul... Lifetime friends. Margaret just started just before me. She started 69 with Jean Howler's sister. And then Paul Smith, of course, started about 79. And then, of course, Vivian Westwood. I mean, Vivian came to stay at my house in the 80s. I can't remember why, but she came up with um, Catherine Hamnett. Oh, she wow. came up with Catherine can you believe? And it was a crazy time that came to my house and... Uh, Vivian actually stayed with me for a night and she was lovely and she came in these big high shoes and my daughter said to me, she's only about five or ten, she says, oh, is this lady out of Alice in Wonderland, Dad? I said, yeah, oh. she bloody well is. And um, <laughs> so, so I'm, I knew all the designers, really. Um, and, and Vivian was just a, a complete character then. And I met her husband who was, who was you know, yeah. pop artist. Yeah. And uh, so I was lucky enough to meet all the, my fellow designers through the through the seventies. Um, so I don't think I forgot anybody. I think those are the people I was sort of knew and grew up with, and they all made a huge success. All those names, they're yeah. all very. I mean, Margaret had a huge business. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, absolutely. Although with Japan and Paul Smith, Paul and Margaret are probably. The, well, I think Paul's the most famous, and then I think Margaret's more under, she's more classic. She's very famous for that whole British look, and Paul's much, much, much more quirky. Yeah, and I don't know where I fit in it, but anyway. Well, I think uh, you're the, all, the, Nigel, I think you're all sorry? the most inspirational people. Yeah, I and Vivian was, was amazing, and she was definitely, yeah. you know, there's crackers, there's a cucumber, if there is such a thing, but she was very nice. And Catherine Hamlet, well, don't see anything of Catherine now, uh, but she's but she she uh, was a great inspiration in about 1979, 1980, early 80s. She, she got the army, British army stuff, off to a tee. She was brilliant at it. 
and she was taking Bombay Bloomers and everything and and making such a job of it. She was great with military stuff. She really was. Wow. And uh, and Paul Smith was always quirky and Margaret was always classy. Yes. I actually still trying to find my feet and it took me from 1979, I really found my feet. Uh, probably building myself out to be the best outwear person around. Yep. And this was pre, pre-Massimo Austin aware because nobody had heard Massimo in the 70s, really. I mean, he obviously came up yep. in the picture later, earlier in the 80s. But I built a really international name between 79 and 83 with being doing beautiful outerwear, you know. Yeah. So that's how it all sort of stopped. You can see it was a big roller coaster from 67 to 84. That was a big roller coaster for me. So I've been chasing um, Andrew M. Ramarup, um, who's the owner of Morris Sadwell, very well-known tailor at Savile Row, and um, his story is quite fascinating how he began his journey in tailoring and in menswear. And it was um, after a few it, after a few months I got hold of Andrew because Andrew wasn't even in London when I was trying to get hold of him. And when I did, I wanted to do this episode with him. One of the most humble and one of the most, you know, word of wisdom that was coming out of his mouth was unbelievable unbelievable he had he had no grudge at all and to tell you the truth with all the stuff that has happened to me and to others with the you know with the with all this stuff about culture and you know the color of your skin and all that stuff and then you know but it we've learned so much from it and i've learned so much from it it was to me, I felt like I've learnt a huge amount. And if I didn't go through that, this is the saddest thing about it. If I didn't go through that, I don't think I would love menswear so much as I do. And it was the horrible way. It was horrible the way it came out, um, in a sense. But at the same time, it was the most challenging and showing you your strength in what you love and what you are passionate about that comes out and that was the most important thing so i've learned so much throughout my career in menswear despite with all of this despite with all of that that's happened i think that did me a huge favor because it made me stronger and it made me realize how passionate i was about menswear and speaking to andrew kind of made me realize wait a minute i know where you're coming from have a listen to his conversation not cutting i had no knowledge tailors do not teach you to cut because they're afraid if they teach you to cut you'll steal their customers <laughs> so you you learn to make pants and you learn to make jackets so you work, work for them for the rest of your life oh, right. you couldn't go out and do business because you can't cut you can't even do measurements so i never taken measurement of anyone or or even cut any garments. It, my own trousers, my own suit, the boss cut them. I didn't cut them. And so when I arrived in Savile Row, I had made myself two suits. When I arrived in England, I made myself 
two suits and I wore one and I carried him. And I came to Savo Road the Monday after I arrived. I arrived on the Saturday, the Monday after. And that was August. Actually, we're in August now. So that is, no, we're, into, we're probably into September, the 1st yeah, of September today. Yeah, today's September. But last month, August 1970, is when I actually landed in Southampton. Oh. I came along Savaro looking for a job. And obliquely opposite Savaro, Kandit Street, there was a, a tailor with a, a small uh, sign out, uh, Taylor Wanted. I think they call it, um, at that time it would be pants hand, you're making trousers, trousers, jacket, or finisher. So if a finisher was wanted, finisher is the one who makes all the buttonholes and all the hand stitches, the surface stitches, and so on. And the tailor is the one who actually put the entire garment together, the jacket maker, the trouser maker, and so on. So I saw this sign that Taylor wanted. I went in, and I was offered a position to start the following Monday. Following Monday, I went in, uh, met the boss. He showed me where I, I was about to work. And then someone else came in with the same advertisement that was out in the window. And he came in. He was a similar age to me, actually. Might have been, might have been a, a year or so younger and asking for the same position. The difference is that he had no experience. He wanted did a position as a, a raw apprentice, and mine was uh, the jacket maker. However, 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes after I got my space to work, the boss came back upstairs, it was it was uh, upstairs workroom, and said, um, have you ever used an iron like this? Because I hadn't started any work yet. Yeah. And I said, no, because you know, the iron I used was a different iron. But if you plug an iron on, it gets hot, right? <laughs> but I hadn't used an iron exactly like the same, but I, I used a different kind of iron. He said, well, if you haven't used an iron like this, you can't work here. Okay. And he gave this other guy, uh, his name was Richard Payne, a, a white guy. He gave him my bench. And I was, um, before I started work, I actually was fired. <laughs> but um, I think he saw the disappointment in me. And he may have felt a, a degree of um, embarrassment, probably, or yeah. responsibility. And so he called up a couple of one of his friends on Savaro and said, you know, I'm sending someone around uh, if you can offer him a, a position or just have a chat with him. So all of this happened about nine, 20 past nine or so. By 9.30, I'm now literally on Savaro directly opposite where I am now. Actually, I'm currently at number nine, Savile and the opposite is number 33, Savile Row. I got to number 33, Savile Row, met a, a gentleman called Jim Welshman. Jim Welshman, actually, very gracious man. He liked the suit I was wearing, the one I had with me. He established that I actually make that, you know, 17 and a half years old. I'm looking pretty, pretty young, and pretty thin, and full head of hair and just about growing moustache and so on. Uh, I look pretty baby-faced. And I said, yes, I made it. He said, well, have you got a machine at home? You could make, you could be an art worker for me. And I said, no, I just, I just arrived um, in the country and uh, I have no facility. And this time I was really staying in an attic room, literally an attic room with the sink and the cooker on the landing 
sloping roof and the skylight through the skylight. It was the only light that we had on wow. top of the landing. Uh, and he called up Huntsman, which was across the road from him, next door mm. to us, um, and spoke to the boss at Huntsman and says, look, have a, have a chat with this young man. Went over to Huntsman. So by 10 o'clock, by 10 o'clock, got fired at 20 past nine. By 10 o'clock, I got a job at Huntsman. Wow. And that was my first real job on Savile Row. So... The Jazz Masters of Menswear. Now, how can you not actually talk about Paul Simons of John Simons? His father was, he's going to say, yeah, his father has done amazing and so much for British menswear. You cannot, I mean, he's a legend, right, in menswear, from British menswear. In my, in my eyes, he is. And talking to Paul, um, Paul was... Paul had a really bad cold that day as well, actually. But talking to Paul was um, knowing and going into, in finding out, in going into his father's steps and how he was doing menswear. It was quite, um, it was not, it was quite fun. It was very fun, actually. And it was fascinating to hear what he felt. And it felt like father and son kind of thing. And it was, and it's, he was talking about how his daughter was dieting and his daughter's quite very young. And I said to him, is your daughter going to take, be in charge as well, like how you have been? And he said, maybe, who knows? But Paul, Paul has this great eye for menswear. His eye for menswear has been quite, you know, has made the business what it is today. And he has... In his own way, he's done amazingly well, absolutely amazingly well, because John Simons is, you know, it's still well known. And you have to give credit to Paul and to the team, because Paul always talks about the team and, you know, everyone who works there. So I would say, you know, Paul's done amazingly well. And it's um, it's nice to see that it's in the family. You know, it's kept in the family and it's thriving in the family. So, great on Paul, actually. Well done, Paul, because you've achieved it. And if he, I think if Paul didn't do this, I don't think, I, I think, yeah, of course, John Simons would have been carried on. But the eye that Paul has for menswear is, it's quite a great stylish way. And, um, and it's all about jazz. And when you go into that store, you just really don't want to come out of it, actually. It's so comfortable. Here's a bit of um, chat with Paul. Well, uh, obviously, being born into into the family I was, I was just uh, surrounded by by my, my dad's uh, career and his interests. And, I mean, it's actually a, a, it's a family business with my dad, but tailoring and clothing goes all the way back through my my family and my dad and his dad and my on my mother's side her mum was a milliner and oh, wow. so it's I think it's in the blood as they say wow I didn't know that that your mum was also in the trade as well well my my mum's mum was a milliner and then my dad's uh dad was a tailor <clears throat> and his mum was also a 
very good pattern cutter so my great uncle tells me but she was supposedly quite lazy so she did she, she didn't get <laughs> as far as she could have but supposedly she was a fantastic pattern cutter oh wow um so i, I so i grew up obviously with my um my dad having the shop in yeah. covent garden uh, i was born 1980 uh, and he opened the shop in covent garden i think about 1980 1981 so i grew up in that shop either going there and just hanging out with my dad and as I got a bit older, going in there and starting to do work in inverted commas. So that would be like packing envelopes. So we used to, um, when we would do a sale, yeah. obviously before the, before the time of the internet, we used to actually send flyers out to people by post. Wow. Back in the so day, that yeah. was maybe like, two three thousand flyers so those had to be folded the envelopes had to be stuffed and someone had to stick a stamp on them and that would end up being Your me <laughs> paul did you always wanted to go into this trade though or was it something like you just I, I, no, into... I didn't i didn't have a kind of dream of being uh, in menswear from a from a young age i had uh, many other hopes and dreams and aspirations in my life I think uh, I found a school book from when I was about 10 the other day and right. it said I wanted to be a, it was like one of these essays you had to do when you were younger. What do you want to be when you grow up? And one of the things I wanted to be was a, a Russian art dealer. <laughs> so I don't know where I got that from, but uh, I think that was also <laughs> inspired from families kind of arts uh interest in art and and the arts and uh russian i don't know maybe that's through my ancestry and also uh, i think the other thing that was i wanted to be a lawyer because i said i was very good at arguing with people so <laughs> one of those things i did actually do not russian art but I, I i did um deal with art and design for quite a while as well so and i still have an interest in that i haven't become a lawyer yet but you know who knows uh, who knows exactly was it difficult to get into like you know how your dad knew about menswear a lot and everything um because he's a legend in british menswear was it difficult to follow his footsteps because you're running the shop yourself now you're running the business yeah, yourself. It, it, i think when you have uh, a father who is a maybe someone famous or yeah. is a big character yeah it it can be tricky for, I think, especially for a father and son, that relationship can be difficult, can't it? Because you're kind of yeah. in the shadow of someone who, who who is known for their work or their personality and you, 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 you're kind of seen as their son and it's hard to kind of tread your own path and make your own uh, personality come through or your work come through. But... I, I I think in in taking over the business, I've not tried to completely kind of dismiss what my dad has done, and I've tried to carry that on, but yeah. with my own stamp and with my own personality entwined into it, I would say. But yes, it can be difficult because as you introduced me as John Simon's sons, so, you know, my name's not John Simon, so my name's Paul. But <laughs> uh, 
you 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 have to get used to that and uh i think you 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 start to like it as well because you appreciate the fact that you you're you're proud of what your father or what you know whoever we're talking about has done so it's all kind of it's all a bit complicated and part and parcel of the same thing and probably freud would have a lot to say about it So I've been fascinated by the kings and the queens of India and um, how British tailoring was a part of their lifestyle. And there was one guy that I actually had to get hold of and his name was Peter Bantz. And he knows a lot about the kings and queens of India, especially about Dilip, Maharaja Dilip Singh. And when I got hold of Peter, I wanted to speak to him about the kings and the queens of India, how they got into tailoring and all that stuff. And he was he he's a historian, so he was he was talking about things that I never knew. And he he was also saying that how how the queens, um, you know, how the Maharani's two particular ones, um, two particular queens of India how they actually changed the way some of the women were dressed um, and how particularly one one um, queen who, who actually escaped the palaces of India in Punjab, um, which was 18. She got on the boat, on the ship, travelled all the way from India to, the, to England and became one of the well-known radio working for BBC Radio, and he, she was working for BBC Radio right during the war time. So, because there were so many um, Indian soldiers involved during the war, um, fighting with the British and the Allies, she was there was only way of keeping them to keep in touch with the world and what was going on in uh, everywhere was through her and he was saying that how she would dress in men's suits and I thought you're kidding me I didn't know nothing about this and I saw pictures of the Maharani dressed in these amazing pinstripe suits she was she was so um she was also in the picture on cover of Vogue during those times in the um during those times and it was fascinating to know all this because I've never been taught about it. I've never read about this. I've never come across this, you know. And also the Maharani guy to Devi, you know, she used to drive an E-type Jag in India. Never knew nothing about this. She was like, she was born here. She was educated in England. She wore all the suits. Even when she went over to India, she was wearing these most amazing suits, tailored, you know, she used to used to love riding horses, playing polo, you know, as you do. Um, yeah, I never knew about this. And it was fascinating to find out. It was such, it was eye-opening to me finding out how these women of India, in India, left India, escaped wearing these kind of Western, you know, Europe, sorry, European clothing, and was, you know, in these amazing European clothing, even the Maharajas who used to come over all the way from India, go to Savile Row, get all their suits made. Can you believe this? I mean, I, I've not found any of this information in any menswear books. 
I mean, I suppose he's quite humble. He was he turned around and said, why would you, Samilla? But I would say, well, why wouldn't you? You know, why wouldn't you? So have a listen to this, because some of the stuff that he was talking about and how they dressed and all that stuff, and it was it was eye-opening. It was, And this is what I say about this podcast. I love doing the research. It's a bit like designing, doing the research, finding ways of making things happen, making things work. And that's what menswear's about. Have a listen to this. I think she was definitely one of the earliest ones. I mean, the earliest one I think, and I, I think she, um, this princess might be earlier, is uh, Princess Indira uh, okay. of Kapurthala, who was the, the granddaughter of uh, Maharaja Jagadzit Singh of Kapurthala. Okay. And she, she actually ran away from home in the 1930s uh, because she wanted to be an actress. And she didn't want to be a typical princess who marries a prince. No, she wanted to leave her own life. Um, and um, she was also in love with, a, with another woman, which would have been frowned upon at she was stayed in India. <laughs> and she she came to um, she came to London, uh, took her an apartment up in uh, I believe in, in Knightsbridge. Um, she worked with Alexander Calder, um, who was you know um, sort of uh, uh, making these the Sabu films, as, as, as you, uh, yeah. you you may be familiar with. Yeah. Uh, but sadly, her own acting career didn't take off. So, but there were many stills that she took for her, uh, for her, um, her resume, for her, uh, for her reports that she would give out to to directors of you know of for potential roles. And you could see her in some really really classic 1930s silver screen uh, poses, um, like the Hollywood stars. Uh, she's really good looking, beautiful um, European uh, look she had, and. Um, um, she even worked for the BBC. Uh, she was a radio wow. broadcaster uh, for, the, for the BBC during the uh, Second World War, wow. where she used to give um, radio programs in Hindustani for the Indian soldiers who were serving um, in Europe. Um, and I, I think one of the images I sent you, Castillo uh, yeah, yeah, in a yeah, two-piece yeah, suit, yeah, uh, again, <laughs> with a cigarette in her hand. Absolutely. And she's got this pinstripe suit on, and it's like, oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> And I didn't even know about this because there's nothing written in the books of menswear about these yeah. women at all. Accessories. Right. So it's been quite hard trying to get hold of someone who who does a lot of men's accessories. And there's one particular person that I got hold of who makes the most amazing hats. His name's Matt Kitto, and he is the founder of Sierra and South Handmade Hats. Um, talking to Matt and finding his and talking about his craftsmanship and his craft, absolutely, guys, I can't tell you it was very inspirational i mean i can't believe when he said to me there's only three people who do this certain element a certain technique on the hats that there's hardly anyone in this country who does it but there's only three people in this whole country that is able to do this if you think i I went silent because i was like what and he was telling me how this trade how his craft you know, it's it's so very limited, very limited, which is quite sad in the sense. But at the same time, it's great for them because, you know, they can make a lot of money out of it because everybody wants a hat. I mean, after talking to him, I wanted a hat. Have a listen to his um, conversation. Here's a little clip of his conversation. 
in the UK, especially, we've always been a hat-wearing yeah. country, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. we just, it kind of went down a little bit, but, you know, you go back to, say, the 30s and 40s and no one left the house without a hat. Yeah, sure. For example, you know. Um, but, you know, maybe it did go away a little bit, but there's definitely been a resurgence and people are more receptive to just going out of the house, you know, and me and their mates and sticking a hat on now. I think that's definitely a thing that's come up in the last maybe 10 years or so. Um, if, you know, if you look in the fashion magazine, you know, even, I'm not talking high fashion, you know, you know something like GQ, for example, there's always going to be a hat of some sort in one of the editorials in, in every issue now. So it's really, they're really finding their way, you know, into everyday wear. Um, and that's what I try to get across to people, that it's not something that you have, you can only wear to the fanciest of parties. You know, my hat is something that you can stick on when you go and walk your dog if you want to. Um, that's what I try and put across to people. Rock and Ruby. A Ruby was, I mean, talking to Ruby, I think all of us, I think everybody felt like we've, we've known each other for such a long time, but we don't actually. But it was such a, so, so much fun talking to her, such a laugh. Ruby was, um, Rock and Ruby, I mean, when she actually named the actual brand after her dog and then herself, Ruby, Rock, fantastic. I just can't tell you, brilliant. Here's a little clip from her episode. And as a, as, a, as a woman, I always thought, you know what, I love, like, men, I, I definitely dress a little bit more, not masculine, but you know what I mean, like, mm. kind of little boxy tops yeah, and things yeah. like that, very kind of inspired by, like, beautiful brands that do nice, nicer shapes and things. I'm not girly-girly, absolutely not. And I wanted to do socks that actually worked with my outfits as right, well, yeah. just didn't feel super girly, had that kind of you know, made in Britain, but actually had that beautiful way, the way the Japanese make beautiful socks. Um, so, yeah, that's why I kind of wanted to do it. I really wanted to do something for women that was inspired by menswear. Um, yeah, so that's why I started doing it. Obviously now I'm doing some men's socks as well because it naturally just happened. And also because I am a menswear designer, it just I always have that pull towards menswear. But, um, yeah, I really wanted to create something for women as well. So you know how I'm fascinated by the space, um, about the planets and everything. I'm so into the stars, the planets, and, you know, how I say that I wanted to be an astrophysicist. As there's a brand out there that's, you know, mixing science and menswear. And I have to say... Um, Satish Taylor, the creative director of Volibac, um, what they're doing is it's out of this world, obviously, what they're creating, how they're creating it. It is on a different level. It's, it's a menswear brand that no other menswear brand is going, I don't think. And talking to Satish about... All of this was so fascinating. I mean, it was a conversation that I just couldn't, literally, couldn't stop saying, wow. Because everything that they're touching, everything they're doing, everything they're looking at, all the elements, every, every part of it, scientifically, 
It's things that you would think that could you couldn't do. No way could you do this. And they're just like proving it so wrong. It is one of the brands that you cannot, cannot be absolutely inspired and fascinated by. And, you know, this is like a dream job. This is like science and menswear mixed together. It's one of those jobs that you just think it can only happen in a dream. And they're creating these dream jobs and they're creating these amazing just amazing menswear, which is like out of this world, literally out of this world. And I couldn't, I mean, there's a second part coming to this. There has to be a second part because we both said we've got to do a second part. And Satish said, yep, let's do it. So wait for the second part. But this is the first part. Um, This is a clip of the um, episode. I think what what makes it so fascinating are the owners, Nick and Steve, who basically um, don't come from an apparel background whatsoever. No. So I think that's first and foremost, it's, it's like they've started a power company with no no inhibitions. And I think that's it's quite, in yeah. some ways, it's dangerous. In other ways, it's quite good because you don't care about all the other things that people no. like who work in the industry care about. You just go out and do it. Yeah. And you don't think about, oh, ooh, can we do that? Or oh, we can't do that because of this. Or we can't do that. You just think, okay, let's just do it. Here's an idea. Let's make it work. And that let's is go and get it done. And, you know and what? that's what's so brilliant. Yeah. Because and so many people are bogged down by yeah, the day-to-day yep. thinking of, oh, this is how I've been taught. And this is what I've got yeah, to do. Which is so boring. And it's not about that. It's about thinking, okay, here's an idea. Can we make it work? Let's try and make it work. And what's the best way to do it? Who do I need to get involved to get work working? So it's it's and collaborating with people to get it done. And it's yeah. like it's it's such a brilliant thing. It's so easy, but people don't think like that, which yeah. is which is quite fascinating. I find that quite fascinating actually. So that was it, guys. That was the highlights um, of 2023. Um, there's loads more highlights. And if I carried on, this podcast will be like five to six, seven, eight hours long. And I just wanted to cramp some of them. Not all of them, some of them. But there are loads of others out on the, um, on the platform that I haven't mentioned. Every single one of them, guest, every single guest on there has had the most amazing stories, very inspirational. And I wanted to thank them all for coming on to Men's Web by One podcast. It's been an honour having them on board and it's a huge honour bringing this podcast to you all. I wanted to wish you all a very happy, safe, very stylish at the same time, 2024. Um, I hope you're all, whatever you're trying to achieve in 2024 or for the future, all comes true. Stay safe. Next Tuesday, I'm back to normal again with bringing you all the other interviews that I've done. Um, really, really great ones. Great stories. Amazing stories. Some of them are just, some of them can actually um, quite emotional, but at the same time, fun. It's been a fun season, actually. It's been a very fun year with the podcast. And I think it's going to carry on. I'm going to carry on with Menswear by One podcast. I'm going to carry on with Menswear, as you know. Um, do something that you love. Carry on. No matter what anybody says, just don't listen to them because I've learned the, learned the hard way. 
and from there onwards you learn so much but at the same time and be truth to yourself if you have that gut feeling instinct feeling that it's going to be okay you know it's going to be okay take care of yourself and stay safe and enjoy and a very very happy new year to you all and here's to 2024 thank you